0: social media is a trap. It's a trap for a bunch of reasons. It's engineered to make us feel bad and it's engineered to have us say the wrong thing. So my argument to people is find your practice, find your discipline and put it in a place where the rest of the world isn't trying to stop
1: Y'all, you won't believe what I've been working on for future episodes. Just know we are going to go much deeper and get much more personal. And it's going to change you. I know that's a big, bold claim. But I, I have to ask, are you subscribed yet to this podcast? please hit follow on whatever platform you're in or subscribe and leave me a review. And in fact, Spotify even added a way to rate this podcast. So I hope you'll leave me a five-star review by clicking the three dots on the show page of your player for culture changers, that is. Also, you definitely want to be on my email list. I've got some really big news coming and that's where I share the most personal stuff. Leave your email at allisonhair.com and be the first to know. I am taking this cherished holiday time to recharge with my family and enjoy the magic of the twinkly lights. I have to say, I really treasure the slowdown. And for God's sakes, I've really needed it. In the meantime, I am re-releasing one of my favorite and most important interviews to date, The Great Seth Godin. Truly, he is the epitome of a culture changer. Happy holidays, everyone. One of the things that I think is so interesting is that you are a giant in the world of ideas and you know your, your thing is really how to teach people to see things in a new way. And through your blogs, through your books, through your Alt-MBA, through the Akimbo workshops, you have... You have been able to activate people all over the world to to be able to make that change. So it's almost like your message is kind of coming through and broadcasting in a prism through other people to be able to create really impactful and lasting change. And so, but however, the world is really in some pretty deep silos. So how do you move a community forward?
0: Yeah. Well, um, thank you for having me. And it has been 2020 has been uh, just such a tragic year. So many people uh, dealing with uh, a health problem, billions of them, Uh, the overdue focus on racial justice in the United States and so many others. Um, And it's easy to look at that from a very far distance and say, we need extraordinary top-down leadership and we have too many problems that are too intractable to solve but that has never ever been the way the world has changed not once the world has always changed when small circles of people change other small circles of people and you know the internet brought a lot of things with it and most of us who were around at the beginning did not expect all of the negative side effects but Mostly what it did was it amplified the voices of people who didn't have a voice and it dramatically increased the amount of connection that people had with one another. When you give people a microphone, they're going to do something with it. Maybe they'll just scream. Maybe they'll just fight for the status quo, but some of them will try to find a voice. And when they find a voice, they might be able to organize some other voices. And the work of my, Professional life has been to help people learn to trust themselves enough to speak up in a way they're proud of and to say, Here, I made this, or Here, let's try this, or Will you connect with me? Because I feel like if we can begin to do that more persistently and consistently, it can't help but make things better. Because if you think about it, almost everyone you know is a good person. And we just have to take the leverage. And the noise away from the selfish people.
1: So, how do you take the noise out of the people that are not selfish, but they don't know how to move forward? So, uh, you know, I think about um, in my construct, I think about creativity. And so, one of the things that you kind of unlocked for me is. is there's no such thing as writer, writer's block. And that to me has been a North Star for my own creativity. So people that listen to this show very often are, are like me, where they are people that um, feel like they have more in the tank. They feel like they have more to give. And I think we're so, we can feel stuck in the constructs of what's expected of us or the cultural expectations. So where does somebody even start?
0: Exactly. This is great. Um, and the new book is about all of this. Here's the, let's start with this. What, what, um, how many podcasts have you done? Five, 20, 200?
1: 66.
0: 66. Do you do a podcast only when you feel like it or do you do a podcast because it's time to do another podcast?
1: It is a professional thing for me. And I, it's not that I'm making money at it, but to me it is, um, I rely on myself um, right. to fulfill that expectation because for me, it, uh, it feels like I'm doing a service exactly. and that I need to show up for that service.
0: Exactly, and it's not that different than brushing your teeth, except brushing your teeth only helps you. This helps a lot of other people, but you don't wake up in the morning saying, say, I don't feel like brushing my teeth today. Yeah. You brush your teeth because it's the morning. So what happens is, Allison says, I need to make a podcast today, and sometime- after she begins making the podcast i'm just imagining this you feel really good cuz you're making a podcast you didn't say i feel really good i'm going to make a podcast it's the other way around we do the work and then we feel the flow we do the work and then we feel inspired and i learned this from my friend the late isaac asimov isaac wrote and published 400 books in his lifetime he invented the robot if you have a vision of a robot in your head he invented that and I said, Isaac, how does somebody write and publish 400 books? And he walked me over to this little rickety typewriter in his apartment. And he said, every morning at 6.30, I sit here and I type. And I type until noon. And it doesn't matter if what I type is good or not. I have to type. Not allowed to stop typing. And because he understood that he was going to keep typing, his brain said, well, if you're going to type, I might as well give you something to say. Whereas the people who say there's writer's block are in advance, announcing they have nothing to say as opposed to typing. And, you know, social media is a trap. It's a trap for a bunch of reasons. It's engineered to make us feel bad. And it's engineered to have us say the wrong thing. So my argument to people is find your practice, find your discipline and put it in a place where the rest of the world isn't trying to stop you.
1: And I'm curious about your own practice, because you publish a blog every single morning, um three hundred and sixty five days a year. I've been uh, a big fan of your blog for ten years. And I think because it is so brief is helpful. <laughs> you know, but but it's so impactful as well. Is that did that start from your conversations with Isaac Asimov, or how did you get your own practice of because I think my guest, I'm assuming that when you wake up, Like you publish, like when it comes to me, it's because you just hit publish, not because you layered it in for weeks in advance. Is that, I'm I'm I'm
0: guessing. I'm glad it feels that way. It's supposed to feel that way. Uh, Once the streak felt like a streak, it felt to me like it wasn't worth risking that I was going to get the flu. And so, no, I don't wake up at four in the morning and press a button. I used to. (laughs) And here's the embarrassing story of when I stopped doing that. Uh, Longtime readers like you may know that one of my small obsessions, as someone who used to travel too much, is the poor design of bathroom showers at hotels. Because it seems to me there's no room for innovation. Every bathroom shower should be exactly the same. You're in a strange place. It's dark. It's early in the morning. You shouldn't have to need a manual to figure out how to turn on the shower. So I've written about this several times. And this was a particularly egregious one. And it was early in the days of the smartphone. So I took a picture of it and I posted it on my blog. And I got out of the shower and there was an email waiting for me and somebody said, "If you look at the picture just right, you can see that you're not wearing any clothes in the reflection." <laughs> oh no. And this could be the end of my career, right? Cuz That's not okay. So fortunately, for whatever reason, someone at TypePad was in some time zone when they got my email at 5.30 in the morning and they took down the picture and my reputation was saved. And so ever since then, there has been a reserve, a buffer of posts that I wrote. (laughs) Sometimes a post takes me five hours to write. Sometimes a post takes me five minutes to write. But the discipline of writing every day, that was my commitment based on what I learned from Isaac that said a lot of people say I can't be a writer, but all you need to do to be a writer is to write every day.
1: I think that that particular concept from from you was so freeing for me because there are times when I sit down, you know, and I, I started a blog because of just that voice um, of you, you know, like just saying, just type, just type. It doesn't matter if it's bad. We need your bad ideas because then the good ones come out. And uh, it's, it's amazing what's happened through there. Um, one thing I think is it tickles me to no end that you teach almost entirely in parables and your ability to, to organize information in a way and tie it to irrelevant stories so quickly is pretty astounding. Um, and I imagine that's a practice for you too. Where did that begin?
0: It is, in fact, a practice. Uh, I began teaching uh, in 1977 in Northern Canada, north of Toronto, in a canoe. And uh, there's something really powerful about having an 11-year-old get into a vehicle that's 17 feet long, for which they're the only person, the only pilot, and saying to that kid, who might have been coddled or might have been uh, not treated well for the first 11 years of their life, "Okay, you can do this. Let's go. watch their physical and emotional state change when they realize it's up to them and that's what happened I realized,
1: to you yeah didn't your yeah. father leave you
0: oh my father did not leave me Wait, i'm using all my stories um but in that moment i realized that turning on that light was my life's work and because i can't be up in northern canada right now doing that i do this but it's the same thing. And what I discovered is teaching the physics of uh, hydro engineering and how paddles flow through uh, fluids does not help anybody learn to paddle a canoe. And what you need to shift is attitudes. And the way we shift attitudes is by doing something, not uh, taking a test about it. And so that's why I do workshops. That's why I don't just make videos. That's why My posture is, uh, you learn to ride a bike, you learn to walk by doing something that didn't work until it worked. And if I can encourage you to do that in the modern world, then you're going to get better at it.
1: So do you feel like action is secure to everything? It sounds like it.
0: Well, I'm not, I don't know about everything. right? I don't want the people who are working on the vaccine that we all need to just make stuff up as they go along. I do believe that justice for example comes from activity not from theorizing i believe that when we start acting like the person we hope to be that is the only way we will become the person we hope to be and so through right action even though the results don't always match we get the chance to do more right action and um i get very frustrated with people who know they're doing something wrong and then say I'm just doing my job Mm. because we are lucky enough to live in a world where for most of us, you get to pick what your job is. And uh, just because you got paid a lot to be on Wall Street doesn't mean you should be doing credit default swaps. You had a choice and please don't tell me you were just doing your job.
1: You know, it's interesting that I think about 2020 and just what you said right now is that we're at such a pivotal time where there is, Truly a confrontation and a dismantling of so many systems, whether it is racism and uh, equality, um, police reform, even the elections. Uh, This is an election year. And when this comes out, uh, we are we are voting and uh, and there's so much out there. To me, I feel like all of this, like you said before, is long overdue, that some of these systems, the hierarchy or hierarchical systems that my parents and your parents knew from a cultural norm perspective no longer work. I think this is an incredible reckoning. And I wonder what your thoughts are on the cultural upheaval. You know, do you look at it in a positive way? Um, and, And where do we go from here?
0: You know what a lot of people don't remember is in in the darkest days. Sorry, part of my computer just crashed. What a lot of people don't remember is that in the darkest days of the Soviet Union, there were lots of people in the Soviet Union who liked it exactly the way it was. And the status quo is the status quo because it's really good at sticking around. If it wasn't, it would have been gone a long time ago. I think the biggest change agent of our time was the internet. In that it exposed a lot of things that had been hidden and it gave voices to a lot of people who didn't have one. So if there's only three TV networks and there's only one or two newspapers in a town, the status quo has way more power. And so what ended up happening is something that from almost any distance looks like chaos. And it could easily be chaos in very painful directions that don't work. There's no, I'm not a Pollyanna about this. There's no guarantee that on the other side, everything is the way it's supposed to be. You know, we know that people's health will be disrupted by status quo systems being replaced by other systems. We know that the allocation of resources means that some places where there was a surplus of resources aren't going to have a surplus of resources anymore. That's a dislocation. That's harmful to some people. Um, But if we believe that uh it bends towards justice and we believe that we have a chance to find potential from people then we need to find more potential for more people because that's where solutions come from you know we're talking about about vaccines um polio is virtually gone and it's gone because a couple scientists working in a group of hundreds of scientists showed up and contributed something but 100 years earlier, those scientists, because of their background, wouldn't even have been allowed to go to school. And so the question is who are we not giving a microphone to? Who are we not giving leverage to? And how do we unindoctrinate so many people so that the brainwashing doesn't stick around? Because if you've been brainwashed into believing you can't contribute or believing that you're a victim, it's hard to contribute. And so I think the peer to peer part is how do we make it so every neighbor, every teacher, every authority figure looks at a human and says, "This person has something to contribute.
1: I think it's such a powerful place to be and it's it's amazing too that um, you don't really need to go to college. you can become a YouTube star and make way more money than you and I do <laughs> you know uh, it's it I think it is like a level playing field and one of the things that is interesting, About you is that you've written on quitting you've written on building tribes. You've written on uh, Marketing uh, you've written on so many different topics and now it is uh, on creativity How do you choose? the topics and do you tap into? What the world needs now kind of thing? Why why is why creativity now?
0: Um, Okay, I just want to put one pin in something Uh, It's not a level playing field even if everyone has a smartphone because if you've been brainwashed into thinking you can't speak up that's just as powerful as not having a microphone Mm. Um, so with that part said uh my books are always about the same thing
1: yeah they are (laughs) And,
0: and uh i call this thing marketing but it wasn't called marketing in the old days they kicked me out of the direct marketing association they banned me that the people who think They want marketing to be that other thing. Don't understand what I do. Marketing is the act of making culture better by bringing your work to the world in a way that you are proud of. And so I wrote The Dip because I was dealing with some people who were stuck. And I told four people in a row the same advice and it made a difference. I was like, well, I could probably share that and it's too long to be a blog post and I'm willing to commit a year to my life to making a book called The Dip. So here you go. So what I found in the last few years because everyone has a microphone, because it does appear to be a level playing field, why are some people shipping creative work and some people aren't? Why are some people able to look at podcasting and say, give me a mic, and other people say, I'll just listen to Joe Rogan? Like, why? Why, where did that happen? It happened because the brainwashing runs really deep. It was uh, set up to touch all of our fear buttons to get us to stand back and let the experts do it. Even, you know, Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan, he's constantly talking about the muse and ghosts and he doesn't write the songs they write themselves. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. This is a man who's made 50 albums and has performed in public more times than I have blogged, which is a lot of times, right? And he shows up and he does the work. That's what he does, but that doesn't make good copy, right? And so what I wanted to do was demystify it. And I wanted to say, you know what? If you study Woody Guthrie as much as Bob Dylan studied Woody Guthrie, and then you show up in uh, Greenwich Village, and you show up, and you show up, and you show up, yeah, you'll make something pretty good sooner or later, or you won't. But at least you'll be on the journey, and that's why it's called the practice. Because my argument is the practice is what is missing from people, not lightning, not the muse, not um, any magical power, just the practice.
1: So I want to I want to riff on that for a second of just if it doesn't ship it doesn't count. So I love what you're saying about that cuz I feel like there are so many times where I've written an email in my head and I'm like it's not going to send itself, you know, like I have to push go and send. And but that applies to so many areas of my life too of just pushing myself outside of my comfort zone of if if I'm going to Ask for seth godin to be on my podcast. He's not going to reach out to me unless I ask him, you know, so Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that construct for you
0: So we have to deconstruct it very carefully because I am not saying if you ship things they will work And I am not saying that selfish hustle is a good idea. It's not Mm. what i'm saying is if you have a hobby if you have a a thing you like to decorate, if you like to do jigsaw puzzles, if you are uh, amused by playing jazz in your living room, please do. It's fantastic. I love that. But it doesn't count. It doesn't count as your practice because your practice exists to make things better for someone else. That's what transforms it from a hobby to a practice, to make it better for someone else. And so what I'm saying to people is, don't ship junk, but also don't seduce yourself into believing it has to be perfect because your definition of perfect is almost certainly not my definition. And you are probably focusing on something simply to hide. And, you know, we, I went to see the Hilma, um, Hilma af Klimt uh, exhibit at the Guggenheim before the pandemic. And this woman was an extraordinary visionary. She made 10,000 paintings that would have changed the world of contemporary art. And she was so afraid of showing them to people that no one saw them until 20 years after her death. And my controversial response, because this was a person who had uh, privilege and who like her family knew the King of Sweden. And so it's not like she was fearing for her life. Uh, My controversial point of view is that she was a painter She didn't become an artist until after she died because to Mm -hmm. be an artist, you have to show someone your work and you have to look at what happens when you show someone your work to see if anyone else got the joke, if the work resonated, if you were truly advancing the ball. And I'm glad she made the painting she made, but I'm truly sad that she couldn't find it in herself to share with a circle of people because if she had, it would have opened the doors for them. And a whole generation of artists, painters, uh, particularly women, would have shown up in the field because she was a pioneer. But looking at it 40 years later, no, it was more. 70 years later, I look back and I'm like, wow, this reminds me of something else that was going on at the same time, but they, Mm -hmm. they, they were parallel worlds. And so what I'm saying to people is, if you want to record all your podcasts and keep them at home, that's great. You can't call yourself a podcaster till you press publish.
1: So one thing I heard in a podcast, so I love Kathy Heller and you did a podcast with her and she's just fantastic. She to me is like the female version of what you do too. Um, but um, she said, I, I think she paraphrased something that you said about um, fear and fear is um Fear is almost like a muse, and so when you talk about perfectionism, you talk about fear i I immediately think about, okay I, I want to write something, but I'm not sure I want to publish i'm not sure I want to ship it until it's good enough you know and and I think there is like a self esteem thing in yeah. there, so I wanted to kind of unpack of what that is like because I feel like people are so held back, and i don 't know if is it culture is it their own self-esteem is a cultural conditioning. How do you get them out of that mindset into one where they are just chugging away at whatever it is makes them light up and do bad stuff, you know, do stuff that isn't very pretty until you make it good.
0: So I think that there's a hack that's available now that makes this so much easier. The, the branding problem is this, uh, we as humans are obsessed with judging the future by past performance. And so we are rightfully afraid that if our early work rubs people the wrong way or is insufficient, we will be judged going forward. And um, I can prove that's not true. Listen to Billy Joel's demo tapes. Listen to uh, lots of artists and creators whose early stuff was totally forgettable. But leaving that part aside, just do it anonymously. Post your work anonymously because what you're going to discover is you still feel the same feeling. The feeling has nothing to do with preserving reputation. And once you can get clear about that and you see how your anonymous work is seen by the world, then go ahead and put your name on it, right? But this was impossible or unlikely a long time ago. Um, And I don't want to encourage people to ship junk with their name on it and then say, yeah, but it's going to get better and hope that everyone will forget the first versions. You don't want a surgeon doing that to you. Right. Um, But at the same time, there's two noises in our head. There's the noise of legitimate fear that says this is endangering me and other people, Mm. but there's the other noise. And that's the noise of, this might work, this might not work, this will cause a change to happen, how will I deal with that? When that noise shows up, it's a compass. And what it's telling you, Pressfield calls it resistance, what it's telling you is you're out, you're onto something, you're on your way forward. Learning to distinguish between the two voices is really important.
1: Yeah. And you know, one thing that I've been thinking about recently, I call it a happiness insurance that people are looking to take a step only if they can ensure that it's going to make them happy in some way. And then you had put in, in I don't know if it was you, but in some of the notes in prior to this meeting is avoid uncertainty. And so right. I thought that's happiness insurance, you know, like that's the opposite of it. So tell me more about that.
0: So avoid uncertainty is a trap. Avoid uncertainty uh, is a, a watchword that says, if I am invo- avoiding uncertainty, I need to acknowledge the fact that I'm seeking to not be creative because the definition of creativity is something that might not work. How do we know it might not work? Cause it hasn't been done before. So we need engineers and we need engineering. We don't want someone to build a bridge that might not work, right? That what you notice, if you look at beautiful bridges is the parts that are beautiful are not the parts that hold up the cars. The parts that are beautiful are the bonuses, and that's engineering, good for them. But if you are doing something that is creative and you are feeling resistance and you are feeling stuck, and you are finding yourself avoiding uncertainty, well, then you just found a trap.
1: So one thing that I, um, one thing I did a long time ago, I went to a seminar on brain science, and this could kind of dovetail off of that too. And the concept was that our brain most of the time is just repeating old patterns and is never really present because if it's in fight or flight mode, it's taking over. If it's just repeating patterns, um, it, it, uh, it's just repeating patterns. So why some people find themselves in the same situation, the same relationship, the same, you know, uh, abusive relationship that they might've been, or the same bad job, you know, with a bad boss, um, in a, in a different job or whatever. And, she said something that stopped me dead in my tracks and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. She said, you know, the only time that you are ever truly present is even with your brain is when you're creating. And that to me, st- I was 29 years old. And I remember it changed everything for me, just that. And I wonder if you believe that.
0: Yeah. I'm not, um, uh, I think that, you know, um, We have lots of insight, Marvin Minsky and others, about what the mind is and what the brain is and all those other things. And I'm no expert on that. But I will tell you that I am completely addicted to the feeling of fresh that comes from being present in solving an interesting problem. And creativity, I don't believe creativity is letting the muse out. I think creativity is defining the interesting problem and going at solving it. And human beings know how to do that. And um, we pretend that's not what we're doing because it's more romantic to do the other thing and it lets us off the hook. Mm. But tomorrow there's going to be a blog post from me and that's an interesting problem. And so for free, I was able to find myself a daily addiction that um, gives me satisfaction and some people get a benefit from. That uh, something I would do even if no one read my blog because it's an interesting problem. And one way to look at a life well spent is how many interesting problems were you able to work on?
1: I loved your definition of solving in- interesting problems. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it was something you can't look up on Wikipedia. Yeah. Right. I think it's just what, amazing. What,
0: what are we doing with our eighth graders if there is any assignment? where they're not allowed to use the computer, but if they did, they could look up the answer on Wikipedia. What have we taught them in that moment? We've taught them a short-term memory hack of how to memorize something for 12 hours. It's not a useful hack, right? That life is now open book. It didn't used to be. Libraries were really scarce. And going to library took a really long time. But now if I want to look up the name of the fourth governor of Alabama, why should I remember that? No reason. What we should spend the entire time doing is saying, it's an interesting problem to figure out how to tell me in four paragraphs your point of view about something in the history of Alabama. And one element of that will be, you know how to go look up the name of the governor. But the interesting problem is you can't look up how to write the four paragraphs. That's interesting.
1: I think it's so amazing, and just to touch on the education thing. So you wrote your manifesto, uh, "Stop Stealing Dreams," on education, and it's something that you write about often. It's something I feel incredibly impa- passionate about. And I'm wondering, how do you like you laid out a blueprint to solve the education problem, and how how do we move that forward? There's so many inequities, racially, socioeconomically, and even just a broken system, especially in the U.S. Um, that how do we even begin to solve that problem? And this question is coming from a, uh, a school administrator too um, yeah. that feels really passionate about it too. But how do, we, how, do, how do people like me as a parent or school administrators, how do we begin to sh- turn that chip?
0: Yeah, well, so I'm not giving myself as much credit as you are. Thank you. Um, I didn't lay out exactly how to solve the problem, but I did lay out what the problem is. Mm. And the problem is parents teachers and administrators do not show up every day saying, what is school for? Right? Like we know what drilling for oil is for. We know what a container ship is for. What is school for? We're about to spend another trillion dollars on this. Why? What are we getting? What are we measuring? Why are we doing that? And all I'm saying is I have an answer about what I think school is for. What do you think school is for? Because if we're not Asking the question, it's really unlikely that school is going to change because right now what school is for is satisfying the status quo.
1: Mm.
0: That is, it has an optimized bureaucracy for persistence. And what's really interesting, you know, during the pandemic, pre-vaccine, people couldn't go to class. So what happened? Well, people, quote, went to school from home, but they didn't data shows that the typical kid went to school for 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day. I've been working on optimizing for online learning for more than five years. Not one educational institution called me up and said, how are we going to do this? And most of the ones that have substance said, we'll come up with something that's passable. And the minute this is over, we're going back to normal. Because they are Mm. optimized for that. And There's no reason at all to believe that education in 2021, when almost everybody has a smartphone, should be like education was in 1921, when all of that was impossible. But it still is. And so we have this huge technical and technological advance, and people aren't asking the simple question. So to answer your question, I need you and your friends and your colleagues to just keep asking the question until someone decides to answer it.
1: What is school for? And I I wonder if some of the, like, I think the, the, there are more schools. I live in Atlanta. There are more schools popping up around here that are project based, which I think are really, really great step in the right direction. Um, But they're, you know, they're hard to find and they're expensive. And uh, I wish, I wish there was a way to standardize that or even operationalize it in a way that makes it more accessible and I, you know, I wish I knew how to do that.
0: Yeah, check out the Acton Academy. I am not affiliated, but I know the people behind it, A-C-T-O-N. And their numbers are, and their output is hard to believe, but extraordinary. Yeah. And in the typical school, they've got 40 or 50 kids and only two adults counting the custodial staff. What? Yeah. And
1: Amazing.
0: The, if if you're in first grade, there's going to be a fifth grader helping you. And every single day you get to the building and they say, what's your project? And you go do your project and you help other people with their project. And the outcomes are off the charts. And it's not based on uh, the ethnicity or income level of people who are coming. It's because kids really want to learn. Kids do not want to be educated. And they're totally different things
1: you're right and it seems it seems like such a fresh and modern and obvious approach but so hard to kind of disrupt the status quo with that and you know one thing i'm i'm curious about is um you know we we are hardwired to fit in we are hardwired to you know to be in the social constructs and you know i think about my son my son is 7 i'm in his room i'm surrounded by legos right now and uh he um he he desperately feels like he needs to feel like he belongs, but he's a different child. He's not, he doesn't like sports. He's kind of more thoughtful. Um, He's more reserved and uh, he, he he is who he is, but he's a little bit of a mess until he finds where he belongs. And right now he rejects what he doesn't really feel serves him, you know, which is good. But I'm wondering, you know, like how how can I help mold him? And even, you know, from a podcast perspective or even, you know, thought leadership of how how do we we are hardwired to fit in. At what point do you veer off the path of convention and say, I think there's something better?
0: Right. So there is no doubt that almost every human is hardwired to fit in. Mm. That's not the question. The question is fit in with who? Mm -hmm. and in an industrialized culture, uh, what you wanted to do in 1955 is fit in with the football team, the cheerleaders, and the rich kids. There is a curve. The center of the curve is the place you have to be because that's how you're going to get picked for the dodgeball team. It's how you're not going to get beaten up, and it's how you're going to get a job at the local factory doing what you're told for 45 years until you get to retire. And so there was significant pressure from a paternalist industrial system to fit in to the dominant narrative but now there's a nerd table and now there's the creator's table and now there's you know the lunchroom has lots of places where you can fit in and it turns out economically that the kids who are optimizing to fit in in the center are really struggling because there just aren't those jobs for them and those careers for them where your primary uh Attraction is that you fit in at the popular kid's table. That what, and I wrote about this in We Are All Weird, that when the long tail kicks in and when people have choices, you know what they do? They make choices. And as a parent, finding, because a seven-year-old has trouble doing this on their own, finding your kid a circle makes all the difference in the world. Because now they've undone the shame that society has put on them which is they're never going to be at the dodgeball table. Fine. This table is where I want to be anyway. And parents who can affirm and support kids who don't fit the dominant narrative are doing really important work. And it's really hard to do. Like if you have a kid who's eight or nine, who's wetting their bed, it's really hard for the parent. And if the parent exposes how hard it is for them, now it's when it becomes hard for the kid right? And it turns out when the kid's 11, there's no problem unless they've been carrying around four years of shame. And so what we've got to figure out how to do is say, if you're not hurting anybody, and if you are pushing yourself to be the version of yourself you want to be, I've got your back. And to oh, have someone have that. your back is so important.
1: Were you raised in a home where these were, this was taught or how, how did this come for you?
0: And if the, you did,
1: how do your parents figure that out?
0: I won the birthday lottery. <laughs> I miss my parents every day.
1: Oh, that's amazing. And I, you know, like you're obviously a living legacy for your parents and who you touch through your work as well. But, uh, but it's really hard work, you know, it's hard work to be a parent. Um, I imagine your kids are probably annoyed Um, When they ask you a question and you answer only in parables, (laughs) I wonder, I've always wanted to ask you, are they always annoyed? (laughs) Uh,
0: I made a deal with my kids when they were five. I wouldn't talk about them and they can talk about me if they want to.
1: Fair enough. I'm
0: I'm super (laughs) proud of the humans that they have become.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time with me. I have one last question for you. What is something you know that you wish other people could know?
0: Um, we get to decide what okay is. And if you want to, you can say that everything's going to be okay and you can be right.
1: I love that. And there's such a beauty in the independence and the self-trust. And I think think that your message from all the work that I've consumed by you has everything to do with self-trust and something that we're missing. Would you agree?
0: Well, the title of my book was going to be called Trust Yourself, and we changed it a week before we went to press. Um, Yes, I think that when we see in a society of people who have free choice and who are privileged to make choices, those people not doing the thing that's brave, it's because they don't trust themselves to do it.
1: Mm. And there's so much out there too. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that your book and your work continues to do that. And uh, I'm hoping to continue working with you through the workshops, and uh, spreading the word. So thank you so much, Seth. This has been an absolute joy for me.
0: Well, thank you. You're you're a pro, and you're generous. And the people who are listening are really lucky to have you in their ear.
1: Thank you so much. I'm gonna go and cry. <laughs>
0: thank you, Allison. You're the best.
1: Wow. I can't listen back to this conversation without getting choked up for a lot of reasons, not only at the opportunity to share his thought-provoking and stirring ideas with my audience, but to talk to a man whose work I've not only followed, but put into practice in my own life. He's a legend. In fact, this podcast started because I participated in one of his Akimbo workshops. Now, what ideas are you taking away from this episode? What stood out to you? Please take a screenshot of this episode and post on the socials and tag me and Seth Godin. I'm giving away a free copy of Seth's The Practice, his new book, for a lucky winner. I've linked everything in the show notes, and now I want to get this message out to as many people as I can. The interview is also up on YouTube if you prefer a video. I hope you'll follow me on the socials and go to allisonhair.com for more. As always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next week.